Hi guys, Robert here. I'm excited to introduce you to Brad, a guitarist for the veteran band Silence and Light. But before starting the band, he served in the Army for 20 years, beginning his career in 3rd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment, and then later as a Tier 1 operator with the unit, or as some may know them as, CAG or Delta Force. Fellow members of the band Silence and Light are Fred on vocals, who served in the Air Force, Brandon on drums, who served as a Marine crew chief on Marine One, the President's helicopter, Tyson on bass, a former Marsoc Raider, and Jason Everman on guitar, who many may know from his time with Nirvana and Soundgarden, and then later joined the Army with 2nd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment, and then 3rd Special Forces Group, before leaving the military and becoming a Pat Tillman Scholar. Together, these guys give back through their proceeds to support veterans through Warrior's Heart and Brain Raider Foundation. We talk about all of this and so much more in this episode. But before we get into the show, I want to give a shout out to all of our patrons on Patreon and especially to Jonathan Lambert for being our biggest donor. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash mentors the number four M-I-L. This is the Mentors for Military podcast. What might be cool is to to talk a little bit about the band Silence and Light. Some of the stuff that you guys are doing is uh, really awesome and what your plans are and everything else. But this whole podcast episode is really about redefining yourself post-transition. And we all come out of the military and at one day you're going to make this transition. So for you, you know, it was a matter of trying to find something that you enjoy doing in your passion. And you started out playing guitar and being a musician. So it seemed to be a really good fit for you. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that's always been a part of me. You know, so I, I kind of carried the music thing into my service and, and time in the service. And uh, at the same time, you know, when I left the service, it was always a part of me. So it wasn't like it was one of the things that I didn't lose when I transitioned out. You know, and that's that's kind of one of the messages that I feel is very strong. It's it's the people that have identified fully with, you know, being a commando or uh, being a soldier or being an EMT. So this isn't just a, a veterans thing. But, you know, when that's gone, like, what do you have left? And uh, anyway, so music was always always something that I was passionate about, always had with me. And it was very easy to kind of pursue a little more seriously once once i got out yeah so i mean you served for 20 plus years because you retired as well right 20 years and 18 days <laughs> down to the days i love it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i uh i i got to the point so i i made e8 probably similar to tom but i i made e8 in a in a pretty pretty quick fashion so i think at like 12 years or under I was an E8, and when I came up for Sergeant Major, I didn't make it in the secondary, and I figured that I wouldn't just because why would they promote me? I could still get out under 20. I wouldn't owe the Army anything back. Sure. So when it came around to the next time to, for the promotion board, I didn't even – I don't even think I submitted a picture. Um, I don't even think I submitted a packet. I didn't care. I was doing what I loved. I made more than enough money with all the specialty pays and everything else that – I didn't want to owe the army anything more than the 20 years that I was already committed to doing. 
So. I totally understand. Actually, I did that twice uh, because of that very reason. I had a daughter that was entering high school, and I had a couple officers that came forward and said they were going to be going to the board. And hey, listen, uh, you know, I I know you want to make sergeant major, and I'm like, no, no, really, I don't, uh, because I knew then that it was going to be a PCS to the sergeant major academy, a PCS after that, and probably another move to my final location. And one daughter entering high school, another daughter entering middle school. I knew then that it was just going to jack up the whole thing. Yeah, totally, totally get it. So uh, I was, I was ready to get out and kind of ready to move on to a new challenge. And I came in at 21. So I I didn't come in, you know, right after high school was doing other things and and trying to make the music thing work then. And, you know, when, when it came time and closer to retirement, I didn't want to be retiring at 50 or retiring at, you know, 55. I wanted to get out and still have enough time and uh, years ahead of me where I'm able-bodied that I could that I could start doing something else so yeah. I was I was ready to kind of make the move you had a lot going on too didn't you Brad in your life I mean at that time yeah I mean there were there were a number of things I mean personally which I don't want to get into um, you know but but I had offers for things outside of the military and that was that was kind of more intriguing than anything else and, you know, that was only going to present itself for so long. So if I had waited, you know, even if it had been two years, that that job and that next thing that carried me through may not have been there. Right. And my point my point being was was not necessarily a personal thing we all go through was the fact that you had an option. You had a decision to make. You know, some guys are just I got to stick with this. I gotta, and they stick with it forever because they're afraid. And you dove right in like you always have. And uh, I mean, it's worked out for you well. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, again, it's like, I, I've never, I've never planned my life that far ahead that I know what I'm going to be doing, or even consider what I'm going to be doing in five years. And I, I feel like, you know, for some people, it works for some people, they can do that. And it works out. But I feel like, if you do that, you start making decisions along the way, that start to guide you in one way or another, and they may not be the right decisions. Hmm. So the only way to kind of the only way to really cross that bridge when you get there is to cross the bridge when you get there. So even even with this music thing, I mean, I've got uh, basically I'm working two full time jobs and have the music is almost as a full time job right now, just because of the amount of work that goes into it and just maintaining a presence, uh, talking with different folks, the people that end up contacting me through social media. So. I've got about three things that are taking up about 26 hours of my day and, uh, and it's, and it's tough to keep up with all of it, but maybe the music thing is something that I end up doing full time. Maybe it's that successful and I can make it in, you know, lucrative enough that I can, uh, I can do that full time. I don't know. I don't want to plan for that until that option presents itself because if I start making decisions that lead me that way, they may not be the right decisions. Yeah, we tell a lot of people the same thing. Um, I don't. We use we don't use the word planning, like you say, but we use the word options. Have options when you when you when you're going to get out. Have options, and and you make sure you had options. Uh, planning, you know, you know, planning that lasts about thirty seconds in execution. So, having options always helps out. Planning ahead five years. I don't know what I'm doing tomorrow. You know, most guys get out and they don't have a clue what they're doing tomorrow. Some do, right? Some do, but. Most people I talk to, 
don't have a plan and they don't have options and then they're stuck. Very different perspective, I got to say, because usually I'm the type of individual that does look at five-year plans, does look at three-year plans, tries to figure out a way, but I, I never thought about it until you just said it about how you're right. If you're focused in that direction, the positive aspect is you may be doing things, you know, change your behavior in such a way that you actually drive success. Yet at the same token, what you're saying is you may be then closed-minded to other opportunities that might present themselves. So I can see exactly what you're talking about there. That's just what works for me. And and who knows if it actually works. I mean, I think I've been uh, pretty successful with everything that I've, that I've touched and have enjoyed all of it. You know, so it, that's just what works for me. And, you know, if something works for somebody else, that's great. But I tend to be kind of live in today live like it's today and today's the only day and and have fun and enjoy it so for me that's the only way i've ever been i have never i've never looked that far ahead you know i had some decisions to make uh kind of late in my military career where i had some family situation happening and i wanted to not deploy for a little while and i made a decision to go in in a direction of like r d Right. So I'm still an operator. I'm still an operational dude. I could still deploy, but I'm not assigned directly to a squadron and I'm not you know, going to go deploy the next time the squadron deploys. And I didn't take that position as an example. I didn't take that position to six, to set me up for what would come when it came time to retire. Mm. I took that position because it was what was best for me and my family at that time. And what I learned was oh, wow, now all of a sudden I'm working with everybody in industry, the defense industry, uh, people that develop gear, people that are inventing body armor and new helmets and cutting edge technology. And all of a sudden it was like the the floodgates opened and I had a number of folks that wanted me to come work for them. So if I had gone into it with the mindset of, hey, I'm going to take this job so that it sets me up for, you know, in three years when I retire, I don't know. It's like, it's almost like my intentions aren't pure, you know? And uh, so I, I've always been probably truthful to a fault and, and, uh, and kind of like my intentions are always pure. Even when I hurt people and do the wrong thing and make mistakes, it's it, always pure intention. I guess I would look at it as just being available to be, you know, to pivot quickly, you know, kind of like what Tom was talking about. Well, Brad's a guy that people have flocked to. I mean, not because of the cool gear he has. He's always been a guy that people flock to. So he's got the easygoing attitude. He puts people at ease. Um, I've always looked to Brad like, wow, if I had that calmness, you know, and that presence, I'd be set. But I'm wrapped up in my own world at the time. So, you know, he's moved through his life from what I've seen and the decisions he's made has worked out for him, you know. Um, And like I said, people seem to flock to him as one of those individuals that, that, you know, you want to talk to Brad. Brad's very busy. People are everywhere that want to do the same thing, you know, and I try to be respectful of that time for people like that. But he's one of those people. Yeah, these little skinny legs have uh, flown me through life. <laughs> <laughs> Good deal. Well, I, I appreciate that, Tom. It's super, uh, super complimentary. And I've, I've told Tom this, and I'll, I'll say it again publicly so people can hear it, but I've told him a number of times, you know, you run across – a number of leaders in your time in the military. And I can honestly count on one hand, 
the number of leaders that I've had that I actually felt were worth a damn, if not, you know, were amazing and actually incredibly competent in what they did. And really, by leader, not just somebody that gives the order, but really can see the whole picture, understands, you know, what's happening and caring for their men and everything else. And Tom is said, you know, like, he is that guy. He is the epitome of the guy that you want in charge of your element when you're going in to do the worst possible thing that you could go in and do. And uh, we had we had one night where uh, we were doing a joint target with the, the Brits and uh, had a Brit that was killed. And I think a couple of Brits that were pinned inside of a courtyard and the team, you know, my team and one other team got the call from Tom to go over and like assault the building. And like, this is a bad situation. It's not like, you know, oh, we're just going to walk in and, you know, secure the scene and everything's good. It was a pretty hairy night. And, uh, you know, just by him, the calmness and everything else that he was reflecting and, and giving out and knowing Tom for for who he was, uh, you know, made it easy for me to go across the street and, and go into that building. No, no issues. I wish I'd have felt that way when I was in, but I appreciate that, Brad. <laughs> it's easy to tell guys, hey, go over and assault that. I'm going to be back here watching you. <laughs> that was that night I wanted to go with you and was sent back and told to stay in the rear, so we fixed that problem. But, um, yeah, that was a that was a very uh, interesting night. I think you actually mentioned that on another episode uh, a few episodes back, Tom. I remember you sharing that story. Halloween night. Was it? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to kind of talk a little bit about, you know, when you were saying you'd really never had kind of the plan. I mean, when you came in to the military, Brad, as I understand it, you were actually going to join the Air Force and then all of a sudden changed your mind. Yeah. So I was a complete idiot when it came to the military. Uh, <laughs> the only person in my family that had been in the military, I had two people, um, both of them rather distant. One was my great great grandfather who was in Mosby's Rangers. He was a captain in Mosby's Rangers, Phineas Thomas. And another one was a, a doctor who was killed uh, D-Day during like evacuating of, of casualties off of the beaches. So he was killed in a plane crash that was actually going from wherever he had landed, uh, you know, back across the English Channel or something like that. But anyway, I had zero uh, idea other than I wanted to do something that, you know, was a challenge and exciting and different. And that kind of came at the end of trying to make a music thing work and pull something together with that. And, and that was actually moving along really well. And then similar to my bandmate, uh, Jason Everman, you know, kind of got this really soured, you know, just by the whole situation. Musicians in general are like dramatic people or artistic uh, you know, super dramatic people. And uh, there's a lot of that in that world and things were on track and, and moving along well. And then all of a sudden it was like, come on, man, you guys are acting like a bunch of, you know, school kids. And, uh, anyway, so I super discouraged kind of said, fuck it, I'm going to move on and, and join the military. So one of my buddies was in the air force and I had talked to him about it and, uh, went in and saw the air force recruiter and he was literally, doing the, the whole bait and switch, like, sure, sign this, and then I can get you a contract to go be a guy that, like, jumps in behind enemy lines and rescues pilots. And I was like, well, that's pretty cool. I'll do that. And uh, any anyway, one day I was leaving the recruiter, and uh, the Army guy looked at me, and he was like, you, you're here all the time, man. What's up? What's he, 
what kind of BS is he feeding you? And uh, I told him a story and he was like, well, I can guarantee you anything you want. What do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to be in Delta Force. And he was like, <laughs> laugh me out of the recruiting station. He said, well, you can't do that. You have to do something before that. Like special. Who's forces. laughing now? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he said, you got to do something before that, like special forces. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And he goes, well, you can't do that either. You got to do something before that, like a ranger. And uh, I said, okay, well, I'll do that. And ended up at MEPS and signed a Ranger contract. That was pre, um, pre-Gulf pre War One, And uh, so I joined in May, and I actually couldn't even come into the Army until, like, November. And uh, anyway, Desert Shield started that summer. And I think at some point they called me up and were like, hey, you want to come in now? I was like, no, I, I, I got plans for November, man. I'm, I so still we need one more do. right now. I'm good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then you will top it all off. Yeah. So I came in with the Ranger contract and uh, midway through basic training was when uh, Desert Storm started. And they literally uh, got us all in formation, like the entire basic training brigade was out on a parade field and some full bird colonel came out and said, all right, men, you're now 11 Mike, which is mechanized. Yeah. And said, you know, started giving this big speech about needs of the army. And we were all going to be riding around in Bradley's over in Iraq as soon as we graduated AIT. And, uh, a couple days went by and, uh, one of the drill sergeants pulled me and there were, there were 12 other of, of us, Ranger contract guys, he pulled us aside and said, hey, you guys are, are going to stay the course. You, they can't mess with the Ranger contract. That's the only thing that they can't mess with. So all these guys that had bonuses for, you know, coming in like unassigned airborne and stuff like that, they all got switched. That and uh, they got their bonuses. Yeah, they got their bonuses and I didn't. But, you know, I ended up going to the Ranger Battalion right after that. Of course, this is all pre-18 X-ray and all that kind of stuff, because obviously you would have gone straight in 18 X-ray. So for those that were listening, that didn't come out till much later, until the 2000s. So, you know, you're 10 years ahead of that part. I do remember a lot of the, the 11 series pretty much were all mics. There were hardly any 11 Bravos now going through OSET at that time frame. Yeah, there was uh, – I don't, I don't know what came after me, but I know that there were a ton of really good dudes – that, you know, they had been told by the recruiter, hey, when you get done with uh, AIT, you volunteer for airborne school. And then when you get done with airborne school, the ranger cadre from RIP will come over and you can just volunteer for that. So they'll take you, you know, as long as you physically pass and, and do all the things that you're supposed to do. But, uh, you know, this, so that was their plan. And uh, anyway, I saw a lot of really good dudes that came in specifically to do that job get you know turned into something else and they went instantly turned into shit bags and i don't mean that in a bad way but just like if you told me hey i gotta go ride around in the back of a tank for four years i'd have probably gone awol literally i would have been like yeah get me out of here you went to rep in uh 91 april of 91 and everything then you end up joining was it 375 there at benning where you were at yeah so at the time they uh they were like, you can pick your assignment. There, there were times when during RIP they wouldn't let you pick pick your assignment. You just got assigned, right? And uh, I, I was able to select, and everybody at the time wanted to go to Savannah because that was like either that or the guys from the West Coast wanted to go to Second Bat out in uh, 
Seattle area. And I figured nobody's picking 375 because nobody wants to stay on Fort Benning. And it's kind of the only way I can guarantee because my name, they went in alphabetical order. My last name starts with T. And I figure by the time they got with, you know down to the T's, all the 175 slots would be filled. And then I could have you know gotten sent to 275. And I didn't want to be all the way across the country. So anyway, I picked 375. And I could see it. I could see the barracks. I could see the guys walking around. It was before um, they had... The section that faced Rip wasn't like uh, it didn't have a brown fence. It just had a fence you could see through. So we could see the guys walking around over there. And I thought that's that's where I want to go. I don't I don't want to live out a, a duffel bag anymore. I want to finish and go right over there. And that's that's where I went. I was actually at Benning at that time frame from 90 to 95 and can remember where the compound was very well. You guys were always running around the black panties and doing uh, PT all day. Lots of fun. Oh, yeah. All oh, those black panties. Oh, black ranger <laughs> panties. You spent a period of time, and of course, you ended up over in Somalia, and you served along there with uh, Tom, actually. You guys were part of the unit that was supporting them. Yeah, it was interesting because there there were a handful of guys that I knew. So I went, I went to ranger school with the guy who's depicted in the movie as Hoot. Um, you know, the, this is my safety. I went to ranger school with him, so I knew him, and I knew one other guy who ended up losing his leg on October 3rd, uh, another Brad. And interestingly, Brad's not a common name, but I know like seven or eight Brads from a very, very small organization, which is kind of crazy. But anyway, um, I knew Brad, and I knew uh, Hoot, and uh, Tom and Kyle Kyle Lamb were the only two guys that I remember, like kind of visually remember. And I I don't think we ever interacted or engaged or anything like that. But as soon as I showed up at Sea Squadron, almost immediately, I went on a team trip with Tom's team when he was still a team leader. And uh, and I knew him, remembered the face, remembered him walking around in his Tevas and running his fingers through his hair and everything else. But can't can't share any uh, battlefield experiences because I don't remember that, um, you know, that part with uh, with some of the guys that I was running around with. But but I definitely remember him from the hangar and I think had an ethafoam boogie board at some point. Maybe was headed over to the ocean. Could be wrong. <laughs> no, you were not wrong, but I should have not done that. <laughs> yeah. It looks most so people nice don't, until you wipe out on the jagged rocks there. <laughs> most people don't know that while we were there, there were uh, four fatalities, shark fatalities. No, just lie. in the just in the time that we were in Mogadishu. Yeah, well, I stopped going to the ocean to start sitting in the tide pool. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> That's like something right out of Apocalypse uh, Now. Yeah, apocalypse poc- now. it's like something right out of Apocalypse Now, for sure, with you guys getting out there, and I could see you out there surfing. with. The- so uh, you guys, of course, ended up serving together in the unit, but now, you know, after your career was over, you know, the- we were talking about it in the very beginning, and you mentioned some of the bandmates that you were with and everything, but what was it that caused you to, to go and start the band Silence and Light? What was that thing that made you start that as part of your transition? Well, Interesting story, and I'll try not to make it a long, painful one, but my wife and I, uh, she's like being married to Yoda. I mean, absolute like wizard in terms of 
her spirituality and connections and she can feel things that I've got going on, like before I even know what I've got going on. And, um, you know, she knew that I needed to do something. And I, and part of my job and things that I was doing at the time is, is giving back to the community. So I got a lot of, you know, reward and rewarding experiences from doing that. But, um, I have one room in my house and I'm standing in it now that's full of like all my musical stuff and amplifiers and stacks of guitars and stuff like that. And she came in one day and, and every Friday night she and I would go out and we do like date night. So we'll have a couple drinks locally, super close and then grab dinner and come home and watch a movie or whatever. And every week she and I would try and figure out like, what is it? Should I do, you know, what, what can I do to help contribute back to the community? What can I do to, feel this sense of purpose that I'm, that I'm lacking. And one day she comes into my guitar room and she's like, you know, it's just a shame that you have all this and you're not doing anything with it. And I didn't even connect the dots at the time, but was driving to work the next day and the light bulb went off. And I was like, I know exactly what I'm going to do. And the following week, uh, Jason Everman, right? So he was coming into town to go see a concert with me. We were going to go see Mastodon together in New York City. And, um, you know, he was going to stay with me and everything. So I thought, I'm going to see if he's down because I can't think of anybody else that I would rather do this with because he hadn't touched music since he he was actually in uh, Nirvana Soundgarden. Mm -hmm. And then when he left Soundgarden, was in another band called Mind Funk. Most people don't know about that, but they were fairly successful toward the U.S. and everything else opened, I think, for Megadeth and uh, some other acts. But anyway, I'm going to see if he wants to do this. And if he doesn't, cool. I, I wouldn't want to pressure him. But if he does, you know, that's who I want to do this with. Who better? And so anyway, before the show, we're having some cocktails and, you know, having fun and BS and everything else. And so I, I ran it past him. Hey, man, I want to put together this and I wouldn't even say it was a band at the time. I just want to put together like a music project. I want to write music and I want to sell it. And when when we sell it, I want to take the proceeds of that and give it back to, you know, some charitable organizations that we believe in. And he was like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm down. So at that point, I kind of switched my very basic Instagram at the time, which was just, you know, a handful of, I don't know, 30 followers, 40 followers or something like that. Uh, and, and started kind of putting out the message. And from there, it just grew organically. So the next guy, Tyson Stahl, uh, former MARSOC officer, he hits me up out of the blue, you know, direct message and says like, hey man, I love your message. I love what you got going on. If I can help in any way, let me know. And I said, do you play an instrument? And he said, I play bass. I'm like, okay, you're in. <laughs> you know? and, and Didn't even hear this him. Was, yeah, yeah, but you kind of know and you get again, it's like, these are all people that came from the community. So I know if they're telling me something, I know I can believe in what they're saying. And, uh, anyway, so kind of grew from there. Then, then a drummer comes along who was a touring, you know, professional touring drummer and everything else. And also does, you know, great stuff for America. And, and so then he's on board and then the singer comes on board. Anyway, it just kind of grew from there. And, And now it's, it's really become like a brotherhood where, it's like a team, you know, we all razz each other and the air force guy is the brunt of all the jokes and of course, yeah, you know, but we have a ton of fun with it and, and have written some really incredible music. And that's, 
that's the thing that I can't wait for that to be uh, be released and get out there because I think a lot of people are going to dig it. Yeah, no doubt about it. I think what's cool about what you guys are doing, though, is what you just mentioned, you know, giving back to the community. So the foundations, two of which that you support are Warrior's Heart and Marine Raider Foundation. And Warrior's Heart is something that you know, I've heard a lot from Jen uh, Satterley. You know, we talk about it and, you know, post-traumatic stress, uh, you know, addiction and chemical dependency treatment for active duty military, veterans and first responders. And then you've got the Marine Raider Foundation that really provides benevolent support to active duty military and and uh, medically retired uh and and in their families and and i think that's that's really awesome that you guys have looked at it the way you did and i think you know it's something that we've talked about a lot in this podcast about you know one way or another guys got to find a way to give back or find a sense of service it's that thing that's usually missing when you make that transition and, and you found it yeah and i i found it in a way that works for me and works for four other guys, you know, so that's, that's not the point, you know, there, there are two things, right? One is, one is like the healing process and being able to kind of like rid my body of some of the negativity through this creative outlet. So, you know, much like Tom, I, I've, I've, you know, tried to find the answers in a bottle of something. Uh, I'm not an alcoholic. I don't, I'm not an addict, but I have abused alcohol, you know, to either numb myself from problems or, you know, just to go out and have fun and not think about other things. And ultimately, all you're doing is delaying the inevitable. And, you know, once once you kind of run its course and the good times are over, then the next thing you know, you're like, man, still feel shitty about that thing that happened all those years ago or, or whatever it might be. And so anyway, I feel like this has been probably more healing, you know, than anything else. And then come to find out too that, oh, hey, they are finding out that art and music and all of that really stimulates parts of the brain that have been damaged either by like TBI or, you know, kind of connecting some circuits that may have not been connected before, but places like Warrior's Heart that are using art as therapy and helping guys, you know, express themselves and some of the things that they maybe don't want to talk about or, or whatever else. So, and I'll, I'll tell you, well, I'll, I'll let you guys jump in and, and throw in whatever else, because I've got a pretty, pretty on point uh, story for that too. But as far as uh, what you're talking about for music and art therapy, it's one of the things that in um, some of the best therapy that's out there for post-traumatic stress, they actually use art as a way to help them by creating a mask in some cases and putting whatever on it. So, I mean, in your case, you found your passion, you're healing yourself. It's therapeutic for your own self and for those of your, you know, your bandmates and such. You're writing music that you're hoping is going to resonate with the veteran community um, and trying to help in some some way through therapy and then you're using the money and the proceeds to give back i mean it's a full end-to-end thing that you've got going on here yeah and and also too in terms of in terms of like a creative outlet it's not all bad stuff you know it's not like oh every song is depressing and about war and dropping bombs or you know like that's not it at all it's more like human emotion but it's real and it's it's stuff that anybody who's experienced loss or love or happiness, like anybody can kind of connect with it. Right. So, you know, that's, that's kind of the coolest thing. So this is, this is a story I've got that I think is really, I don't know, it was an inspiring moment. So I want to share it and it involves Tom. 
last year in June, I think he and I were both down in Tampa and I invited Tom and another guy out to dinner. And there were a handful of other people that ended up attending, but the two guys that I invited, Tom and the other guy who I'm not going to name, were both uh, Mogadishu guys too. And what I didn't know was that they were, um, maybe there had been some bad blood, you know, in the past. And maybe they didn't really get along with one another as well as maybe I thought, but we were in different troops. And so there wasn't a lot of interaction. And that night, you know, after we have a drink or two and nobody was getting drunk or loaded or anything like that. It was a very tame night actually. But the two of these guys watching them make amends with one another was one of the most spiritual and healing things that I have seen since I've been out of the military. And I couldn't wait. Like it affected me so greatly. Like literally the next day I'm on the, I'm on the plane and like just thinking back to the night before and what I got to witness, like tears are just rolling down my cheeks. And all I wanted more than anything was like, I just want to pick up the fucking guitar. I just want to pick up the fucking guitar, like get the guitar, can't get home fast enough to pick up the guitar. And I got home and dumped this thing out of me onto the guitar. And to, to date, it's hands down like the most powerful tune I've ever written. And it's going to be titled Silence and Light. But it's kind of the culmination of the album. And really, the song is about contemplation and and maybe those moments that someone might take before they do something that's irreversible. And just an incredibly powerful song. Um, but can't wait for can't wait for folks to hear that. But it followed an incredibly meaningful, uh, you know, watching this this whole thing unfold. But I'd be curious to hear Tom's take on that that evening no I, I know exactly what you're talking about and i had a lot of light shed on me that night as well um internally i mean i i become i had become someone that i didn't want to be around um i've never felt like people liked me i didn't ever felt like a good leader i never felt good enough everybody i was surrounded by was so good guys like brad you know his his team leader other team leaders all the people everybody really you don't lead those people. You you can't, you know? Um, and guys would get angry. Oh, they just go do this. They go do what they want. They think they can do anything. And I'm like, I would rather have a team of stallions I have to pull back than a team of mules I got to beat. And I, I, these guys, you don't lead people like this. Like I said, you, you just, if you try to lead them, you're going to fail. The, the, you guide them. That's all you can do. They're, they're all better than you and you surround yourself with better people. But I had become someone that was so self-centered like worried about what everybody thought of me that I was destroying myself trying to fit in, trying to be good enough. And I never thought I was. So I just became an asshole. I mean, I, I literally think I became um, a grumpy PTSD asshole that just, that's how I survived. I covered everything up with anger. You know, it's everybody's like, Oh, it's love and hate. No, it's love and fear. You know, it's, it's, love and fear. And I think I led with fear for a while and I, and I tried to start leading more with love in my life, you know, cause you lead with fear. People follow you when you're there all the time. If you lead with love, they'll, they'll do what you need them to do. Even if you're not there. And that's who I, that's who I was in charge of guys that didn't need me there anyway. So making amends with people that I had, that I had thought I hurt or said the wrong thing to, you know, um, was cleansing for me and uh i mean deeply cleansing for me and really 
part of the start of my recovery. I'd been hit and miss along the way, but um, lo and behold, Brad brought us together, you know, just one night on a thing. And, uh, and man, that, that started a whole chain of reaction in my life that, that has got me here so far, you know, still going, still working, still pushing at it. But, but yeah, what a, what a night to, uh, to walk away from and then think about. Um, at the time it was happening, I wasn't thinking about it, you know, I'm just doing my thing and it's just happening. Um, but after I, I, I too thought about it and it was, it was a lot about forgiveness of myself. I don't, I didn't have to forgive anybody else really. I had to forgive myself, you know, and knowing that other people could forgive as well made it easier for me to forgive myself. So that was a hell of a night for me. I think, you know, something that you said that's also pretty powerful that at least I picked up on, Tom, is that I think a lot of people would look at you and say, you know, here's this guy, former Delta operator, um, you know, somebody I look up to, those types of things. And you've heard it often by our guests that's been on the podcast, you know, and uh, yet here you were somebody just like the average Joe that constantly questioned, do I belong? Is this the right place? Am I holding up my end? Am I doing everything I'm supposed to be doing? Could I be doing more? You know, those types of questions that each one of us ask ourselves all the time and everything that we do. Yet we try to make it seem as though someone like you would never, that thought would never cross your mind. That's, that's my thought every day going through the gate. I hope my ID card works. You know, I hope I hope this gate opens up. I hope the door opens up for me. Um, every day, I tormented myself. Um, I had a lot to work on in my life. I'm sure I was going downhill, um, but I tormented myself more, I think, than anybody could have tormented me. And guys like Brad, with the calming spirit and the the attraction that he has, and it's just his personality. Um, I I, well, I envied people like Brad. I I envied from the day he came in to the unit. I mean. New guy or not, I'd been there a couple of years, you know, still instantly here's guys better than me. Wow. You know, how did I get here? And uh, I had to let go of that. And and at that dinner, speaking with that other gentleman, uh, really brought a lot out for me that I had to let go of some stuff. Um, not anger. I, mean, I don't, I don't, there's nobody I don't like out there, really. There's people that I, I stay away from because I'm afraid they don't like me. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh. It's different, and, and I'm sure that that appears to others that I'm I'm all about myself. You know, oh, that guy's stuck over that guy's an asshole. But really, I don't feel good enough to be around you. So, you know, what I mean, talking yeah. and opening up, opening the channels is what really brings people together. Communication. Yeah, I'm that way. I'm that way with women. Like, I can't talk to I can't talk to women. I'm not good at that at all. And and so I do this thing where it's like I, I'm not going. There's no way in a million years if I was like a dating guy that I would ever walk up to a woman in a bar and start conversing with her. Cause like, I'm scared to death on the inside. Nope. And I'm, I, I, I'm yep. a fear of rejection, <laughs> fear of everything else. Like I don't have the balls that, that takes to do. And, uh, you know, so did you, did you sit I, back I, and watch those guys that could do that? Like, how do you do that? Yeah. How do you pick it, up people? How do you talk to people? I, and yeah. I couldn't do it. Uh, guys know, that aren't good looking, just go right up and talk to people and chicks are all over them. It's like, how do you do that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I've, I've had women that I've become friends with that have come, you know, and said like, man, I thought you were an asshole. Like, why? You know, I didn't do anything. I didn't say anything. And they're like, yeah, that's exactly it. Ah, just, yeah. Like you wouldn't even come over and say hi to me. Like, Oh, you're too good to come over and talk to me. Like, 
No, I'm terrified. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna walk over to like a, attractive women and just start talking because I'm not good enough. You know, that's like that that whole self value thing that you think that just because someone's at whatever level, you know, they're they're immune to that. Well, I can't wait to hear this song now that you've shared that story. I'm actually going to be looking forward to hearing it. And uh, when when are you guys going to be putting out the album? I've been following you guys for a short time frame here, and I noticed that you guys have been in the studio. So uh, do you guys have any set date, or is it just more as, you know, songs roll in, you'll go spend some studio time, you'll work on it and everything, and as the album gets released, it kind of gets released? No, so it's it's all recorded. Uh, we spent the better part of January and months prior to January kind of getting everything tight so that when we went in, there wasn't a whole lot of creative process in the studio, which is just time. You know, if, if in the late 80s, when record labels were paying, you know, millions of dollars for studio time and things like that, it was a little different. Bands would go in and spend six months in the studio, but it's not like that nowadays. So, and given that this is all self-funded up until this point, you know, we've we've paid for everything out of pocket and, and expenses add up pretty quickly considering oh, hey, fly to L.A., oh, and I've got to bring guitars out to L.A., oh, and we've got to rent equipment, oh, and we've got to, you know, all that stuff is very costly. So anyway, uh, album is completely finished in terms of recording, and, you know, probably the most exciting thing that I've got in regards to that is the producer we're working with, who's a fellow veteran also, and an A-list, I mean, literally an A-list producer. He's Justin Bieber's producer. He's Celine Dion's producer, Maroon Five, like a Justin, my man. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, yeah, you, wait till you hear that song about you, Tom. Uh, no, but anyway, he's a pretty busy guy. So he's doing all the mixing and mastering in his, you know, kind of holes in his schedule in between, you know, six weeks with Bieber and and other things. But it's about halfway completed the post production stuff. So um, most people don't realize that like recording is one part of it, but there's a whole other piece of art that happens with guys that have an ear for this vocal needs to be a little more present. This guitar is too loud here, needs to be dropped back. This, you know, has to get shaped and everything else. There's a lot of that that happens and that's easily, you know, two thirds of the time. So anyway, long story short, should be completed with all of that in May, latest in May. Uh, and then producer, kind of one of the, the the coolest things that happened in the studio was that you know we're feeling each other out we're not you know aside from texting and being on the phone with the guy a number of times prior he didn't know what he was getting into he didn't know if the music was going to be horrible or if it was going to be good or you know now i'm stuck with these guys for however many weeks in the studio dealing with shit music um you know but it was cool to see that evolution kind of happen too, where it's like, man, he's tapping his foot. I wonder if he likes this stuff. And as we kind of felt each other out, you know, then he, he brought me aside maybe the second night that we were there and pretty long hours, but we're outside and uh, having a cold beer after, after doing that stuff all day. And he said, uh, man, I was really worried about you guys coming in here and my plan to bail out if if your if your music sucked. Oh wow! <laughs> and uh, he goes, he goes, I gotta, I gotta tell you, man, like the fact that I'm here should be telling you volumes. And you guys really brought the goods. Quote, you guys really brought the goods. And that was probably the most flattering thing any, anybody could say. So 
anyway, that stretched out over, you know, the whole period of time that we were there recording. You know, I kind of asked him, what's your plan with this? What do you what do you see? Because there are two options, right? One is we can throw it up on iTunes. Does doesn't like doesn't require anything. We can throw it up on iTunes and start selling it right away as soon as it's mixed and mastered. Um, but he said that he wanted because he had already had interest from a couple of labels. He wanted to shop it to labels. And my only guidance to him in regards to that was I'm cool with that. But ultimately, this is a project about, you know, selling music so that we can give back to the community. And I don't want to be in a nine month negotiation with a label, you know, to figure out what we're going to do or not do or tour support for this or merchandise. And we're going to give them percentages of these things like I don't want to deal with that. So if it's a quick and easy thing. I'm all about it, and if not, so anyway, when it's it's completed, he'll probably take the first three songs, which are already wrapped up now. He'll probably take those out and uh, kind of shop those around and see if anybody's interested or, or how interested they are. If they are, then that'll start that process, and if they aren't, then we'll release it. And, and really, a label not being interested isn't saying anything negative about your music, just they don't have the money or, or resources to throw at something to try and you know, get it further off the ground. So yeah. we'll see where that goes. And uh, that's why I say that's another example of like, I'll cross that bridge when I get there. I'm not going to think or worry about it now. I know that we've laid down some really good stuff. There's one tune specifically, not Silence and Light. It's another one right now we haven't even titled it. It's uh, just song C. I had everything kind of uh, alphabetized. And uh, that tune, hands down, you could throw it on the radio today. It will get radio play all day long. It's an amazing song. And I feel like ultimately that was kind of the culmination of going to the studio was to write that one song. And it really is a powerful, it's a powerful tune. Everything that, everything that it says, the emotion that it conveys just in the music itself. But that was, uh, that was something that I'm super proud of. I think all of us are super proud of that. Yeah. I think we're going to be looking forward to the music to come out so that people can purchase it wherever it might be, just because of the fact of how you're doing it, what it supports and those types of things. You should get a lot of people rallying to that. I would see. Think of the doors you're opening. Yeah. More so than just making music and giving back to the community. You're giving people hope and ideas. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things that I feel like I didn't expect necessarily, but the number of people that have hit me up on social media and said like, man, I heard this podcast with so-and-so and it helped me deal with my situation or, you know, love what you guys are doing and can't wait to support it to, you know, everything in between. I'm a, I'm a such and such and I can help promote it this way or whatever. Um, but it really is pretty cool to, to a number of kids that are like, Hey, what, what should I do? I'm, I'm joining the military. Should I should I go Ranger? Should I go 18 X-ray? Go Ranger. Um, <laughs> you know. So like anyway, that kind of stuff. It's I've already I've already started you know helping people in that regard, and that's been incredibly rewarding. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that we love about this show as well as uh, the podcast is just the same thing that you just mentioned. And you're using your platform in much the same way, whether it's through your music or just through the interaction of the people that are now following you or following the band. I think that's that's tremendous. And that's again, goes back to how you've now been able to redefine yourself post-transition. You've now, you know, latched on to the thing you were most passionate about when you were younger 
use that today as a way and a service to give back to the community in which you love. Uh, it, it's uh, it's really good. And I think that's what everybody who's listening needs to try to do. And I've said it before on many other podcasts. If you can find a way to make a living at it in whatever your passion may be, that's the holy grail. But you can also do like you're doing and use it as a sense of service and a way to give back and uh, make some money at the, on the side or whatever the case may be. But, uh, you know, it's, it's still doing something that's related to your passion and also service. Yeah, I think it was I think it was really cool to see it connect, you know, even with an A-list veteran, you know, Marine Corps veteran producer, you know. So it's it's not like and I and I think, too, if your intentions aren't pure and we talked about this a little bit earlier, like I think people see through BS pretty quickly. And they know when they're getting the real deal versus getting somebody that's trying to sell them something. And, you know, the only thing I want people to be aware of with the music piece is that, you know, every bit of every royalty that we collect. And this has taken a lot. Like most people don't understand, like we've had to stand up a corporation so that personally we're not getting royalties. And then, you know, what happens at tax time? Oh, you got... X number of dollars from this music royalty and it doesn't matter that you contributed. So like all this stuff that's had to happen, um, you know, it's been, it's like building my fort in the woods, you know, it's my, it's my thing. It's my go-to place and it's my happiness and it's my passion and, and all of that among other things. But you know, it, it works for me. So, well, you may be blazing a trail actually for somebody else who might be listening and go, wow, you know, how, how do I get in contact with Brad to find out how he did what he just described on the podcast as an entrepreneur to stand up his own organization? You know, don't be surprised if somebody doesn't reach out to you and, and hear something like this and, and wants to know more about how you blaze that trail. I think in a way too, it's, uh, it's it's kind of a trickery thing with the music industry, right? And I, I want to be careful about this because I'm not trying to scam anybody here. Nobody buys music anymore, right? Kids listen to their music on YouTube. Um, you can, as soon as it's out there, they throw it up on some forum and everybody can grab it. So very rarely, even, even things like Spotify, um, they don't pay the musician the royalty. They pay based on like, streams so unless you're in the millions of streams you're not seeing hardly any money from that so you know that's one of the things i'm hoping to do is inspire people to buy the music because nobody really does that anymore and you know it's kind of a lost art where people just anybody can make a record so things are different the music industry is different now than it was before anybody can make a record but you know, everybody should be buying it too. And I think some of the, some of the bigger organizations like BMI that we're a part of. So you have to register with BMI or ASCAP, you know, to be able to collect royalties and things like that. Um, but BMI has fought, you know, even legislature, uh, with the government to try and, you know, draw attention to the fact that like, Hey, there are people that are, you know, this is the way they make their living. And, and, the music industry is like literally fleecing them and through all these other mechanisms that people can get music through the internet, you know, they're not paying for it. And, and it's, it's literally pirating, you know, but you run into these problems with people will donate money if they get a t-shirt, you know, or something. And I always thought if I'm going to donate money, I want all my money going to what I'm donating to save the mm -hmm. t-shirt, save the hat, you know, make music, buy the music. The money's going for a great cause. You get a hat, t-shirt you get music for it it's like 
you want to help people put your money where your mouth is. Donor fatigue is so high. Um, there's so many people ask for money, and it's so hard to find a place that puts your money in the right place. And there's so many people that don't understand the term nonprofit. It's a business. Okay, you have to pay people to do work in a nonprofit. The company doesn't make money, but people have to get paid money. You know, so well, and it's okay for like, a nonprofit to make money. I mean, it has to. It has to make money. So that's a misnomer right. too. Is that nonprofits are profitable or can be profitable it's just that they're supposed to use that money to support the mission and i and i agree with you tom i think it's one of those things that people get really confused about uh in terms of understanding business and they do expect that every penny goes to actually supporting whatever mission that that organization wants to do which means that everybody's doing it on their own dime doing it for free and everything else that supports that you can't always run an organization and maintain it for a long period of time that way either and look at Brad's expenses just to get here. Oh, it's got to be crazy. You have to recoup that before yeah. you go forward, you know, unless that's Brad's donation, the band's donation, somebody donates. Right. Things that's need kind of, paid for. Things need paid of, for. <laughs> you have to eat, live, sleep, get there. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of where we decided in terms of business side was that up until this point, you know, we'll consider that our personal contribution to the cause. Wow. And and that's totally fine. Um that's you typically know, the case. You start and, a nonprofit, and, you start a group, a band to help people, and you have to dump your personal income into it. And everybody's okay. like, well, are you making money for people? What are you doing? Well, I've spent the last two years doing this. Right. It cost me all of this. Right. And that's, that's the second part of it was being business savvy enough and having a good accountant. Thanks, Robert Riley. He represents like Axel Rose and a number of other people, but that's my wife and I's personal accountant and uh he he gave me you know the inside scoop on well you can stand up a not-for-profit you could stand up you know an s-corp you could do this or you know any number of different things but ultimately you want to stand up a corporation because let's say you decide at some point you're going to sell t-shirts which we are there's going to be swag that'll start showing up soon like we can choose to give some of that towards the charitable organizations, or we can use that to, say, pay our travel to a benefit show that we've been asked to do, you know, like opening for Lenny Kravitz in November. Like, we can't just, we can't continue to do that out of our own pocket. So there's going to have to be a side of it that's able to receive and spend money as needed. And then there's also a side, you know, that that's why we've selected the 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 royalty as the pipeline to, you know, the charitable contribution. I think the key to it, Brad, is sustainability, isn't it? You know, to, to, to keep something going and give it longevity, it has to be sustainable. So you, you're 100% doing it the right way, you know, and by, by allowing the business to bring in money to enable you to do more things to give back is completely right. And, and people get it mixed up with charity as such and they expect everybody to be doing everything for free you know to be donating your time to be giving products and things and, and it isn't that way it isn't sustainable if everybody gives everything for free people get tired of that and, and can't give anymore and it just runs out and, and things die a death then you know so sustainability really is the key and non-profits and businesses that choose to put their profits back into the cause is, is the way to go over charity these days, I think. 
Yeah, that's, you know, as an example, I, I've probably had 15 offers. Uh, most recently was the the benefit thing that Lenny Kravitz is headlining at. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also something at Loretta Lynch's ranch and, you know, was asked to come do that and play at that. And I thought, you're you're looking at just for us to come play that is like $10,000. Just moving equipment there or if we have to rent equipment or what's the equipment situation uh, flying ourselves there, eating for, you know, the two days of traveling, uh, hotel, all that stuff. And we're not like, nobody's trying to stay at the, you know, Ritz Carlton or anything, but it, that's going to be a significant, we're coming from five different states, you know, from me in New York to Jason in Seattle to everywhere in between. And, you know, it's, it's, there's no way for us to be able to do that if, if we're not making some sort of income with it. Hey, Brad, how do people find your band? How can they find information on your, your band and, and upcoming events and, and hot topic items and things like that? So right now, probably the strongest uh, presence is the Instagram, which is Silence and Light Official. Uh, that's that's the main place. But linked to that also is a website. And that's something that's, you know, still it's not under construction anymore. It's live. Uh, but we're just going to continue to add to it. So like I said, there'll be swag and some T-shirts and hats and stuff like that that'll be going up on there soon. I think we also have a Facebook and all that links from the website. So if you get to the Instagram or the website, the website silenceandlightmusic.com, uh, you can go to all of those and kind of get a little bit of everything. I don't I don't think we do Twitter. That's about the only thing I don't, I don't think that we're on that. But at some point... All that stuff should link together. So all the most recent posts on Instagram show up on the website and there's news about us and and all that. So people can read up and, and everything else. We'll make sure that we tag a lot of those things within the show notes. So if people are interested and want to find you and support you guys, they'll know how to do that. Brad, appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule and all those things that are going on and um, the post uh, edit work that you guys are doing within the studio to join us on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. No, thank you. Thank you for having us and thank you for supporting and thanks for being out there helping people the way that you are. It's, a, it's all good stuff.